The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to today's show. My name is Mary Woods and I'm the Director for Western Community Services. And today we have a great show on tap for you. Our guest today is Richard Broom, who was born in upstate New York in the Albany area, where he attended Gilderland High School. And uh, he also attended the State University of New York at Cortland. And also he attended the Hudson Valley Community College until 1966 when he was drafted into the Army. Richard remained in the United States Army until he took an honorable discharge in 1968. He returned to graduate from Hudson Valley Community College in 1970 and re-enrolled in SUNY at Albany. Richard has worked his way through colleges and restaurants, nightclubs, and hotels and went on to a career in the hospitality business after school. In 1982, Richard was incarcerated and spent 359 days in the county jail while awaiting trial and sentencing. For approximately the next 10 years, Richard remained in the Florida Department of Corrections. On March 9, 1993, Richard was released on parole. He began to work in sales, selling large-ticket items, and he began to work in treatment industry in the drug and alcohol rehabilitation profession. On January 1, 1997, Richard began working as a therapist in a small treatment center in South Florida called Behavioral Health of Palm Beaches. Now this center has grown into a well-respected treatment to treat three separate, to include three separate centers over 150 beds. Richard continues to work as a primary therapist, and uh, welcome to our show, Richard. I also wanted to point out that you've got a book coming out in November with a great title called Cocked and Loaded, which is uh, your journey through substance abuse into recovery. So welcome. Thank you. Um, What an illustrious career. Um, First of all, are you still with Behavioral Health of Palm Beaches? Yes, I am. I was just uh, actually just finished up uh, two uh, individual sessions for new patients that I got in. So can, you want to begin by just telling us a little bit about behavioral health of Palm Beaches and how you became interested in working in the addiction field? Sure. I was, um, well, I, I, I was drinking uh, for a lot of years, and that's why I was in that hospitality business, as, as, you, as you call it, because it was easier to drink there and work. And, uh, and, you know, you could make a living and do what you wanted to do, basically, to a certain extent. And then... Um, after I got out of out of prison, uh, I uh, was working, like you said, in selling in sales. And I was like, one time I, I managed a small help. Well, I managed a small restaurant in Key Largo, Florida. And um, after a couple of years of being out of prison, I decided I needed to go up to New York to to make amends to my you know the people that I'd harmed up in that area, Albany, Troy's connected area, and. Uh, so I came home, and then while I was there, I was still selling, but I wasn't uh, getting as many appointments as I had down in Miami, Florida. And so I was up there trying to sell, and then I uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. He said, "Why don't you go get a part-time job at a, at a, at a you know uh, at a rehab, rehab center, a treatment center?" And I said, "Okay." So he set me up with an interview and stuff. And he he was a uh, he used to drink with me and stuff. Years and he was one of my fraternity brothers, and he had like about eleven years at the time. I had about twelve years sober at the time, and um, so I went and started working over there, and I just haven't stopped. I started working at a place called Conifer Park, mm-hmm. Very and after I worked there about a year, and then I came down to Florida because a friend of mine was opening. In, he had an outpatient place here, Doctor Don Mulaney, and he had an outpatient facility, and then he was going to make it try to make it inpatient, so he called me up and asked me to come down here and join him. 
And I'd known Dr. Mulaney for many, many, many years. I'd gone to college with him. And uh, so he started it, and it started off like, you know, I think there was one person when I got here, and it opened up at the beginning. Officially opened January 1st, 1997, and I've been here since, about 12, little, about 12 and a half years. And are all three programs in the West, in the Palm Beach area, or so they're all in Palm Beach County? Yeah, I work in a in a building in Lake Park. It's Phase Two of the Behavioral Health of the Palm Beaches program. There's another program that is for uh, people who can't afford this program. It's about half the price, a little less than half the price. It's called the Center of Alcohol and Drug Studies, and that's in Lake Worth. And we have also a upscale place called Seaside. That's up at North Palm Beach. So there's three of them going at the same time, but you know they're the same, but they're different. Okay. So um, your book, which will be printed in November, um, mm -hmm. will be published by whom? HCI. Okay. Health Communications Incorporated. And it has a great title called "Cocked and Loaded," which yeah. uh, can mean many things. So why don't you explain to us how you came up with the title? Well, first of all, I didn't come up with the title. Uh, the, uh, my editor, Michelle Masters-Tiani of HCI Books, came up with the title. I wanted to call it something else, and she said, not a good idea. What I wanted to call it was The Real Million Little Pieces. Yeah. And uh, she didn't want to do that because this, the, the book A Million Little Pieces had uh, started off great, but uh, apparently they found out that it wasn't quite the truth. Yeah. So I wanted to call it The Real Deal, you know, The Real Million Little Pieces, and she didn't think that would be a good idea. She's the one that came up after reading the unedited version of the book. She came up with Cocked and Loaded. And it's not really talking about the gun or anything. It's talking about me. I was cocked and loaded. You know, I was just ready for action at any time. I was just, uh, I was out there. I was out in that lifestyle. And uh, obviously it cost me some time in prison. But it also cost somebody his life, too. So that's what it's about. I got in a... My last, one of my last adventures, or whatever you want to call it, was in a in a bar in, in a, near West Palm Beach, Florida. And the last thing I remember that night is about eight o'clock at night, uh, shooting a gun off in the air for real fireworks. It was July Fourth, nineteen eighty-two, and I was looking for it. I didn't think of it at that time, but I was looking for attention. So I was outside, had a half a dozen people watching me shoot a gun off in the air for, you know, real fireworks. And uh, about apparently about three, three and a half hours later, uh, I got some kind of an altercation with somebody. He died, not on, not right then, but he died about 36 hours later. And uh, I woke up the next day at a house that I'd never been in before with a woman I didn't like. And, Got a phone call from somebody else, and they told me the police are looking for you. You shot two people last night. They say you shot two people last night, and I knew there's something wrong, but I could, you know, I just couldn't remember. They call them blackouts. I'm sure you know about them. Yes, I do. And, and uh, I was in a blackout when I did it, which doesn't mean anything except I don't remember doing it. I'm sure my behavior was a little erratic, but uh, you know that that. Uh, I woke up, and that's where the book starts. Right? The first chapter is about what I what I felt and what I did that first day. And, um, you know, I was trying to figure a way out of this whole thing. You know, one, once again, once again in the jackpot. You know, trying to figure my way out of it. And so I started drinking again because I couldn't think unless I drank. And that's where the, the book starts, and then it, I go through, you know, many of my experiences and stuff. Um. Kind of lay the groundwork. You had uh, gone to school at Cortland University. Did you start drinking when you were in high school, or when you went well, to service? I, yeah, I drank once in a while in school. I think my first time I got loaded, I was fifteen or fourteen years old, and I was out camping. And I, I don't think it. I know it. And we were out camping out. You know, the, uh, just a few kids in the neighborhood. We went out in the woods because I grew up in a small town called Gilderland which is between Albany and Schenectady, New York. And um, a bunch of us kids were out camping out, and we, we procured, we stole a case of beer from a uh, local golf course, and uh, we drank it. They uh, 
had two or three beers and passed out or whatever, went to bed or went to their jungle hammocks, and I uh, continued to drink until it was all gone. And I just remember feeling, wow, this is what I've been missing my whole life. I'm going to do this again. And so every opportunity I got after that, I uh, I drank. And I and I drank because, uh, well, I, it made me feel good for once. And I didn't drink every day because I didn't, couldn't let my parents catch me drinking because I would have got punished. I mean, uh, I, was, I got punished for a lot less things than that. And, uh, so it started off slow, but I, just, I graduated from high school. I had just turned 17. And I went off to Cortland. And of course, the drinking age at the time was 18, and I was 17, and I got a hold of some phony proof, and now I was drinking weekends, you know, once or twice a weekend. And it just progressed after that. I got, I got, finally got kicked out of Cortland for fighting in a bar down in the, in the village of Cortland, or city of Cortland itself. And I got, what I got was suspended for, for a semester, semester and a half. I was told I could go back to second semester the following year if I grew up. And I, you know, I didn't grow up. I just kept drinking more and more and more. My following fall, I was I didn't bother even trying to go back to Cortland. I went to uh, Hudson Valley Community College, and uh, by probably within two months, I was drinking daily. And that's just how I, you know, what I did. I joined, pledged a fraternity because they drank. They had parties. Started working across the street from the from the college at a bar, um, and uh, that's where it started. So when you kind of look back on it, it sounds like there were some really good red flags from the very first time you drank. In terms of pardon me, well, it sounds like there were a lot of red flags from the very first time oh, you drank. Oh yeah, in but terms I, of, I didn't pay attention to any red flags. Yeah. In terms of your I ability to it. drink when everybody else was asleep and yeah. tolerance and the yeah, and it just you know it just made me. I remember thinking this the first time I drank. I remember thinking, "Wow, I feel better than I do when I pitched a no hitter." I had pitched a few no hitters by that time, and uh, I just kept thinking, "I feel a lot better hitting a basket near the end of the game." And I had done that, you know, to win a basketball game. Um. Addiction is a powerful disease, and we'll be right back to talk with Richard more about um, his book, Cocked and Loaded, and other aspects of recovery. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh, anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. 
One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend, who wasn't in junior high, wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit cybertipline.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. If you have any questions for us, please give us a call. Uh, I really want to commend Richard on writing this book because I think so many times um, we we don't see people come out of the dark side, and a lot of huh. people have a misconception that um, you know recovery really doesn't happen, or that recovery only happens to a certain few. And I think that this is a great power of example for people who went down a really dark path and ended up um, with uh, charges of manslaughter and being able to come back and lead a, a, a wonderful life. And I think that's just a great power of example. So thank you for writing the book. Um, <laughs> thank you. It, it really helps, I think, too, with the discrimination. And I, I think for, um, I think sometimes our profession sometimes discriminates against our, our own, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, if, if somebody relapses uh, and they're an accountant, usually there's a way back to work after they get treatment. If somebody's an addiction professional and they relapse, it may be a little bit harder to do. Um, I think sometimes when we look at people's past, uh, some people will judge them more harshly than others because of what's happened in their past. Um, where we, we tend to have a maybe a little bit better... Um, perspective with our clients than we do our peers sometimes. I, that's my own comment, but I'm wondering if you've come across any of that. Well, I don't. I mean, <laughs> I don't. Uh, no, I don't. I know you don't, but have you come across any of it in your own experience? Well, we've, we've had some people relapse. We let one therapist relapse, uh, I don't know, eight years ago. Three three years later, they, they give her a, re- a job again, and she for a couple of years, and she relapsed again. Now she's not back, but uh, I don't think they'll hire her back. But uh, yeah, I've seen a couple people go. I remember having one guy here was here for a couple of weeks, and I thought there was something. I think someone was bothering him, and then I realized that he was using it. Somebody else, they, you know, they, he went away to a rehab himself, and uh, he never came back. I think that was on his own. You know, I don't think he. I think he was ashamed to come back. We know about guilt and shame, right, Mary? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Um, one of the things that I think is really uh, powerful and that will be coming out in your book is your own journey in recovery and the fact that when you went to prison, you were able to find recovery, and then you were able to stay in recovery after you got out. And could you talk about that experience? Sure. I went to uh, after my county jail time. By the way, it wasn't, I wasn't charged with manslaughter. I was charged with first-degree murder. They were trying to put me in the electric chair. Oh, my they were try, And they were trying to prove that I premeditated it, which was nonsense. I didn't know the person. And it, it happened like in a couple, you know, split second. Boom, boom, boom. And it was, you know, crazy. And then I got convicted of what they call second-degree murder. And it's just how the, the laws read in the state. Now, if I was convicted of it in New York, it would have been called first-degree manslaughter. The reading is the same, okay? In the statutes, the reading is exactly the same. Uh, Second-degree murder in this state reads just like first-degree uh, manslaughter. 
manslaughter in the first up in New York. So, but I got yeah, I was at a place called nicknamed Rayford or, or Rock in Florida, which was it's a tough prison. It's one of the most uh, violent prisons in the country. It's really a Union Correctional Institute. That's where my first uh, permanent party was, and I was in there, and I, I didn't like the looks of the place, and I found somebody who was drinking. Real, real simply, and then there was what they call buck, and they said, I think they call it hooch up north. What it is is homemade wine. Tastes like whatever. Say if it's got using oranges in it, it tastes like orange flavored gasoline, but it gets you drunk. And I started getting drunk once or twice or three times a week, and then you know it started progressively, but it was three or four times a week, and then uh, one day I had a. Accident at the time you could sell blood, and I sold some uh, blood, and I got ten bucks, and I went over and uh, and I bought some of this buck from somebody, and I drank it was ten dollars for a gallon of it or two fifty a quart, and I, and I drank a gallon of it, and that wasn't enough that day, so I drank uh, another quart of it, and I did this for like an hour, and it was about eighteen percent, and I. Remember walking over to my job at the time because I just got there. I used to work in the chow hall, and I served food and clean up, lunch and dinner. And I remember staggering across the compound to go to there, and that's the last thing I remember. And I had one of my infamous blackouts again. I probably had 500 of them in my life. I didn't pay attention to that either. And, I, and anyway, well, the next day when I went to there for lunch, a guy cornered me and told me, he said, hey, you've got to stop that. Stop what? He says you got to stop, you know, showing, you know, showing your butt. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he told me I had been chasing around somebody with a mop handle, two guys, two young guys with a mop handle. And uh, what he what he was saying to me is I was trying to hurt him bad or kill him. And uh, and that's when I did the first step, basically. He kept, and I cut, at first I didn't believe him because I wasn't in solitary confinement. He said, you know, they don't care. You know, you're a Yankee, they don't care about you. And, uh, and the other two guys were black guys, they didn't care about them. So I, that's when I did the first step. I, that, that, I didn't know it at the time because I didn't know what the steps were. I'd never been to a meeting. And I said to this guy, I said, I guess I gotta go to that AA. And I thought I use an expletive, I can't. I can use on the radio. I said, I guess I, guess I got to stop this, and then I guess I got to go to that AA. And that was my first step. And uh, that night I went back to my cell and I filled out the request form to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And about, I'd say, twelve days later, I went to my first meeting because they had a, they had a meeting every two weeks at this president. It was a two-hour meeting every two weeks. And the first meeting I went to was on September 22nd, 1983. And I haven't had nothing since then, but the first meeting was very interesting. I sat way in the back of this pavilion out in the visiting park. And it was probably a 100-foot-long pavilion. sat way in the back and uh, listened to the guys around me first. I won't go into that, but it was pretty humorous. And then a, uh, and then the next two weeks later, well, I heard that they brought in, the nine people came all the way from Jacksonville, Florida, which is about 45, 50 miles away, and I was impressed by that. And I listened. They all spoke for 10 or 15 minutes. I listened to them. Then I moved about halfway up. And the next two weeks later, I listened to them some more, and I related, and I kept relating, and it would it feelings and stuff. I couldn't share it with anybody there because, you know, you don't supposed to have any feelings there except for hate and anger. And so I moved up in the, right up front and I stayed there. And I ended up getting involved with the, being on the steering committee and then I was a recording secretary for a while and then I was uh, uh, co-chairman. I would have been chairman but I got transferred to another prison. And all that kind of, you know, it, it, but I also got lucky too. I got asked to teach a program, inmates teach, you know, instruct at a program. It was a behavioral modification program called Growth Orientation Laboratory. It was a private company that sold the program to the prison system. They used inmates to teach it because it would be a cost effective. And that 
I remember going through the program and then being asked by inmates to come in because I could, well, I had a college degree at that time and I could, I could uh, you know, a two-year degree and I could uh, read and write and, I, you know, they asked me to work there and it was a savior. I mean, I don't know how many inmates we helped, but I certainly helped me by doing that for about two years there and then another year later, about ten months later, uh, years later in work release, I did it for ten months too. And that was all about, well, most of my irrational thinking and irrational behavior, you know, I could see it. And, uh, between AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, or the Twelve Step Program, and uh, and that 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 behavior modification program, I started actually getting healthier, and, uh, and so it went. As far as when I got out of prison after. I did 10 years, 8 months, and 5 days, but who's counting? But uh, I got out of the joint in September, or March 9th, 1993. And uh, the first thing I did when I got out was I went, I went to, of course, to see the parole people. Then when I was done with them, finished with doing all the paperwork and things, I went to a meeting. Then I went and had a good dinner, and then I went to another meeting. And I continue to do that to this day. I still go to 10 or 11 meetings a week. Did you find AA different when you were outside than when you were in? Of course. <laughs> it's a lot different. In, in was all right, you know, but it, it it was a lot different. It was a lot different. AA's, uh, what do you call it? It, was, it, was, it had more quality on the outside. It was more... Um, more, but more positive outside than it was inside. More of a fellowship. Pardon me. More of a fellowship. Yeah, and it was just more positive things they were saying. A lot of times in, in, in prison, a lot of people talk, 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 say something or recite something because they want to uh, sound good. And uh, they got a little paragraph that they have memorized, and they keep saying it over and over again, no matter what you're talking about. Outside, people fought, and they, you know, they, they give you what they told you the truth. They told you they were honest with you. Inside, they... We'll be right back with the next segment of uh, one hour of time with our guest today, Richard Moe. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're talking with Richard Groom, who is the publisher of Cockton. I'm sorry, is the author of Cockton Loaded, who will be published by HCI in November. It will come out, Richard? Yes. Okay. I think 
think it, they told me first it's going to be on in November. It'll be on Amazon Books and then it'll, Internet, and then uh, then it'll be on uh, in January. It'll be in bookstores. Um, prior to going to break, you were sharing with us kind of your early recovery, and um, during the break, you were sharing with me that at Behavioral Health of Palm Beaches, you currently work with first responders. So your life has come full circle. Yeah, as yeah, I work with um, it's it's like I say, it was ironic. I work with today. I work with every police officer, corrections officer, firefighter. Parole officer, probation officer, 911 operator. I've had, I've had patients from Canada, from the uh, provincial police. Um, any kind of first responder, anybody, we call it safety officers program, and we kind of, uh, well, that's what, we specialize in that. I'm here with them every day, and then, well, Monday through Friday, and then there's, there's a, a retired, uh, Broward County uh, Sheriff's officer who, who has a has his master's in psychology, who works with them in a couple days a week. And, uh, you know, we have a trauma resolution specialty group for them. We have EMDR for them because they have a lot of trauma and they have a lot of uh, high-stress things going on in their lives. And uh, at one time I was I caused some of that stress, and today I'm trying to uh, teach them how to deal with that stress. How do they react to your history? Well, different ways, you know. Some of them at first don't go, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You have to be kidding me. But I have guys that are from the west coast of Florida, from a couple of different sheriff's departments, in particular one sheriff, one county's department, that they'll come over and visit me. Um, you know, most of them are pretty okay with it. Most of them are pretty okay with it, uh, especially after they, you know, they do a couple of caseload groups, a couple of Two hour, we have caseload group two hours a day, four days a week. And uh, they get used to me. <laughs> I'm pretty forward. I'm pretty direct, and that's probably maybe what they, they like about it. Yeah. Um, so tell us about how you came to write the book. Well, like I was saying, uh, I met this. First of all, my daughter. My daughter tried to get me to write this book for 10 years, and I just. You know, I just kept saying, I haven't got nothing to say. You know, I really, you know, I don't, I don't think so. And, you know, and she kept telling, finally she says, you know, you could help a lot of people through a book. I said, all right, I'll think about it. And then I went to this training up in Long Island with a a man named uh, Terrence Gorski. And the second day I was at this, a week-long training, and the second day I was at it, uh, at the training, and we were talking after the day was over with, and he realized that I was an ex-con because he asked me how come I he didn't see anything in my face he got I didn't show anything and I just said well that's my prison face and I wasn't showing any emotion and um, you know like a poker face uh-huh. yeah. and uh, he uh, says talked to me about five minutes he says hey you want to write a book and I said nah about 15 minutes months later my daughter kept on me kept on me kept on me so I called Terry up and Said, yeah, I want to write the book, and it was in August. And he said, "Well, I'm, you know, I got I'm booked up until January 1st." And he said, "We'll start it then." In the meantime, Don Mulaney, Doctor Mulaney, the uh, one of the two owners of Behavioral Health of the Palm Beaches, uh, was working with HCI Magazine, which is you know the same company, HCI Books, HCI Man- Magazines, or and uh, he had been. Put, put some articles in the Counselor Magazine and, you know, done some uh, advertising with him. And he talked to the owner, and the guy said, well, I'm send us a chapter. So I sent him a chapter. Well, the first chapter is, you know, what happened the day after I, uh, when I was, when I found out about uh, what the police were looking for me for. And, uh, and I went, yeah, I, know, I wrote about the feelings I had and that's trying to think my way out of it and trying to do something like I had one thing I would try to do is I wanted to go if I went in if I turned myself in I wanted to be with a lawyer and I couldn't the lawyer I, the one lawyer I knew down here I couldn't get a hold of that day because it was a, it was a Monday and July 5th was a holiday that year and uh, the lawyer wasn't working I think he was golfing and then the other plan was to try to get my car I had and then take off and that was at my 
where I lived, and I figured it was being where I lived was being watched, and I was right. And uh, the third plan was if if they caught me before I could do plans one and or one and or two, uh, I was going to try and make them kill me. It's called suicide by police. And uh, part of my plan was also trying to take some of them out with me. And, uh, not a good plan, but I was, you know, I didn't have a really good head at the time. And, uh, and that almost happened. They caught me before I could come up with one or two, but I, yeah, it was just, I just couldn't get to the... Uh, they caught me by surprise, and they had a SWAT team there and a half a dozen detectives, and they took me down before I could get to my... Uh, to fulfill my plan. And the reason I wanted that plan was uh, because I had been, I'd had a gun in my mouth two days before that, July 2nd, 1982. I had it in my mouth about five times during the final year because I couldn't stop drinking. I didn't like the way I was living and I didn't like myself at all. But I never was able to pull the trigger. And uh, I figured this was a good way out. It didn't work out. It didn't work out. My, my, none of my plans worked out. Like they say, give, want to give God a good laugh, tell him your plans. So. Well, it sounds like he had something more in store for you. That's what I believe, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I do. I believe that completely. Richard, what for you has been the best part of recovery? Just being able to help other people. Seeing the light in their eyes, not, not just at work either, at the, at the meetings. Like I said, I still go to 10 or 11 meetings a, a day. Just watching people grow. Just watching them when something clicks, when they have an epiphany, when their, their eyes light up and, and they realize, wow, I never thought of that before. You know, and you, and you see, watch them grow in progress and in recovery. It's, it's a great thing. What's been the best thing for you? Do you like yourself today? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I'm okay with who I am today. If I wasn't, I wouldn't talk to you. Yeah. I wouldn't tell. I wouldn't. I. I don't believe it or not. I don't really look like much of a con. Okay. Yeah. I don't have any tattoos, and you know, and uh, most of these nobody don't in here would ever even know I'm a convict. I just share that ex-convict. I just share that with them because it's you know it shows them that you can go down to the as low as you can be and still right. recover. Be in recovery. So I, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I'm okay with who I am today. I feel real good about myself, uh, as and opposed to what I used to feel about myself. I'll tell you that. And it sounds like you've learned to manage your anger. Yeah, well, it took a lot of t- a long time. Slowly but slowly, that happens. You know, what happens is, um, well. I got a work release, and my sponsor says, you're angry. I said, well, you haven't seen nothing. <laughs> I'm not in nowhere, I'm anywhere near as angry as I used to be. He says, you're still very angry. Because I got a sponsor when I was in work release. And uh, Anyway, he had me when I was like a, like a tenth step. Uh, he was asking me to, it was a different than a regular tenth step. He asked me to write down every day, uh, Something I respect at night when I sat down at night, just before I went to bed, write down, answer the question, what did I respect myself for today? What did I do for somebody else, whether they knew it or not today? What did I, uh, what did I enjoy today that had nothing to do with me? And the fourth question was, what bothered me today? And what he was trying to do was get me things that were positive in my life, because I didn't do too much I was respected myself for, so I would be forced to do something, so I'd have something to write it down. And I actually went along with this, which was amazing in itself. And I didn't do things for other people, you know. These random acts of kindness, you know, like gagged me sometimes, you know. I wasn't used to that so much. So I was forced to do something for somebody else. I was forced to uh, relax and Smell the roses, so to speak. And what a way I enjoyed it. it had nothing to do with me. You know, sunrise, sunset, uh, watching clouds, watching birds, listening to kids play in the park, you know, things like that, laughter. And it had nothing to do with me, and I, let, I enjoyed it. But it forced me to stop what I was doing and just listen once in a while. And the fourth thing was what bothered me today. Now, 
after I did about six month entries and what bothered me today, there was, you know, 10 or 12 entries a day and one of the, on only one of each of the positive things. But it started getting where I was getting two or three of the positive things. Anyway, after about six months, my sponsor says to me, let's go back and look at what bothered you. Go back to the first few weeks and read which, what bothered you five, six months ago. So I went through it and read it. He said, what did you see? I said, well, some of my, the most of them I don't remember. And he says, that's the point. He says, most of them you don't remember, so how important were they really? And you can see by the way I wrote, how hard I was pressing into the paper, that they did bother me that day, you know, a lot. But what, six months later, I don't remember what I'm talking about. So how important was it really? So this guy, this, this sponsor I had, Bill, Bill H., he, he saw me coming and he, just, he knew exactly, <laughs> he, he, you know, he was really uh, hip to me. He knew what, exactly what I was like and what I needed. And the man helped me a lot. Sounds like a great sponsor. Yeah, he was. There he is. He still is. So, so if, if somebody out there who's listening who um, maybe have maybe has gotten to the point in their addiction or in their recovery where they feel like their past is too overwhelming, uh, what would you say to them? Well, first of all, a lot of times people do have trouble with the fourth step. The fourth step is basically you're looking at your life to see how, how you got to this point in your life. And a lot of people are going through that part of their life and they don't like what they see and they just stop the fourth step. Well, if you don't do the fourth and the fifth step or any of the rest of the steps, you're probably going to relapse. So there's, you know, there's, you have to do, do something about it. Well, there's a thing they call eye movement desensitization reprocess. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I haven't been trained in that, but we have somebody here. What I would suggest to somebody is go find an EMDR specialist, eye movement desensitization reprocess specialist, and go do some sessions with them. Because if you can't do it by the four-step way, you can certainly get rid of some of your worst trauma and your worst feelings about yourself. Oh, I don't know. You know, things that bother you the most, you can get rid of them in an EMDR session. And we'll be right back to talk further with Richard about recovery and um, working at the Behavioral Health of Palm Beach. We'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. treat your child like an adult so why put them in adult seat belts if they're under four foot nine they need a booster seat I can't see. are they fighting me oh that's so cute no honey hornets don't bite silly they sting Ow. for more information go to boosterseat.gov this message brought to you by the ad council and the u.s department of transportation when I found out my jeans were made using child labor and sweatshops I wrote a letter to the company saying reconsider your labor practices A few months later, I get a letter back saying thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor and sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may contain vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. 
Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, Our guest today is Richard was the author of a soon-to-be-published book called Cocked and Loaded, which um, sounds like a great book, and I'm anxious to read it. I just want to kind of underline for everyone how important it is to understand that addiction is a brain disease. And while people are responsible for their behavior, um, this is a disease that people can recover from and do recover from. And I think Richard's story is a great illustration of the fact that you can end up almost at the electric chair, but then come back and have a, a rich and full life in recovery. And I, I just want to highlight that. And once again, thank you, Richard, for writing the book because I, I think so many times um, I know a lot of the people that I've worked with who've been in prison feel like, you know, they can't get beyond the stigma of being in prison, let alone um, recovery. Yeah, well, I, I uh, that's not true. <laughs> No, I know it's that, but it's the way sometimes people feel. Well, it's an easy way out. It's an easy way. Sometimes some people want to think that so they don't have to put the work in. I mean, it's not, it's a constant thing. I mean, I don't think about drinking. I haven't had a desire to drink for like 23 years. Uh, um, my first my first uh, two years and 11 months of sobriety was knuck, white knuckle. While I was in the prison, I used to have to force myself to think about things I was ashamed of <clears throat> before I went to prison even uh, to force myself not to pick up because it was very available. And people were always asking me, you want some? We got some. We smuggled some Jack Daniels in. You want some? We got some vodka. We got some fresh buck cooked off. You want some? And I used to have to really fight it. But I had a spiritual experience in 1986 in August, early August, uh, and I got a visit. Anyway, after that experience, I never desired to drink again. Pretty amazing. Um, it's, it's a miracle. Yeah, well, that's what it was. It was like I call them spiritual experiences. I have a little spiritual experiences every day. If I'm, I'm paying attention, I'll see them. But uh, this was a this was this got my attention. I mean, really got my attention. First, I got the God got my attention, and when I was chasing that this guys around the chow hall. You know, the next day he got my attention a little bit, and I got my attention a little further. I started seeing that. Uh, first, I thought, you know, nothing wrong with me except I drink too much once in a while. I remember telling that to somebody, and uh, well, another inmate. The inmate said to me, "Yeah, that's why you got a life sentence. You drink too much once in a while. You know, that's nonsense." And uh, so I found, realized it was more to it than just stop and drink. And I had to change my behavior, and my thoughts, and my actions, and, uh, and I just continued on. You know, one thing after another, I'd see one thing after another. Uh, one time, I remember, I had probably five years sober, and I was in a different prison, and I was watching a movie, and, uh, and I thought I had it together. I had it all together, and I watched this movie, and uh, it was a horror movie, and they were in this big castle, and a bottle, a carafe of wine tipped over and spilled on the table, and I thought, my first thought was, what a waste. And I, I said to myself, wow, you thought you have, you, there's more work to do, pal. You know, I'm thinking to myself, there's more work to do. How fast did you react to that, you know? Another time I came up with the idea that I was, I may have been, uh, I was, well, I, I, it was like an epiphany. I was at a, an AA meeting in prison, and I and, and I went up and I, we had to go walk up front to share, and I walked up front to the podium and shared, and I said, I'd rather be sober in prison than drunk on the street. Bottom line is, I'd rather be sober on the street, but if I only had the first two choices, I'd rather be sober in prison or drunk on the street because I was freer in prison than I ever had been the last five years I was out drinking. 
alcohol control everything I did. You know, and then while I was in prison, I had the freedom of thought. I had the freedom. I could feel what I wanted to to a certain extent. I, I, I maybe I couldn't go any place, but I could. I was. Uh, Freedom to do physical exercise, where alcohol made me too lazy to do it. I was, you know, I was much freer in prison than I had been, especially the last year or two before I got locked up. Well, and it also sounds like you had opportunities to better yourself in prison that you didn't have when you were on the street. Well, yeah, I took them. That's, yeah. You know, I chose to take them. I was uh, guided. I didn't think so at the time, but I was guided. Yeah. So, it's, you know, it's been a, it's a lot. A lot better life. Uh, my lifestyle is completely different than it used to be, and that's what that's what recovery is. You change your lifestyle, a lot of your lifestyle. If you don't, if you do what you always did, you'll get what you always got. So I knew I had to change my lifestyle. I had to change the way I thought about things, and slowly I did. If people want to find out more about the first uh, responders program or the behavioral health of Palm Beaches. How can they get? How can they contact you? Well, they can call up eight hundred two five one nine four four five and talk to the admissions part. The admissions part also, you know, will send out literature to them and, and things like that. And is there a website? You know, there probably is, and I don't know it. Okay, that's awful. <laughs> well, just Google anybody who's interested. Behavioral health of the Palm Beaches, and I'm sure you'll find it. Yeah. Um, it'll be on the web somewhere. Uh, I do know HCI Books. I know it's my uh, my editors, Michelle M. HCIBooks.com. The publicist HCI is Kim, Kim W. And HCIBooks.com. So I know them, but I just don't want to We got the 800 number. So, um, for everyone who's listening, the book is called Cox and Loaded, and it will be uh, available around November of 2009. The author is Richard Bloom. And thank you for uh, coming on and telling us about your journey. And thank you so much for writing the book and uh, having an opportunity for people to get some hope and some uh, redirection in their lives. Thank you for asking me. You're welcome. Have a great week, everybody, and uh, we'll be back next week. One hour at a time. Thank you. you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.